Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out, new distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't. I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. Well, I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 49, recorded on January 2nd, 2024. For this show, we will be reviewing our thoughts over 2023 rather than individual distros. Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. This month has been all about the holidays, by which I mean my wife's knee surgery. I did get Open Randriva LX5 Rock installed on my test machine so I can play with it and probably do a review next episode. I've been a bit down the past month or so and have not been able to work as my wife has needed me to take care of her. My music and everything else is taking a back seat to the winter lows. We even had to cancel my annual trip to Atlanta, which hasn't helped my spirits any. Dale, how about you? I finally finished my office for the most part. I have a few pictures that need framing. I also want some pictures from the trip to Utah made into wall tapestries, most likely small ones because of the resolution. Since I couldn't find anything in my two closets in my office, I finally removed everything from them and organized it. This was an undertaking of many days. Surprisingly, I ended up with a couple of uh, the empty uh, storage bins, these little stir-like containers, clear bins and computer-related activities, and boy, did I have quite a bit of it. A lot more than uh, in past months. My Lenovo Tiny M710 locked up while recording episode 47 of Distrohopper's Digest. I can confirm Eric's success with Audacity's file recovery. Upon rebooting from the lockup, my audio file was still intact. I finished a recording on my Pangolin laptop. The next day I checked the fan settings in the EFI and saw it was set for best thermal control. I tried the next settings, which were the fan on full speed. That only lasted for a few minutes since it sounded like a jet plane taking off. I've nicknamed it the 747 mode. I've removed the old paste from the CPU and applied new paste. The old paste didn't look too bad, but it was dried along the edges of the heatsink and quite thick. I'm hoping that resolves the lockup issues. Another puzzling issue is with the USB ports. When I plug in my Focusrite Scarlett Solo audio interface, 
I sounded muffled and otherwise unintelligible. I plug it into another one and I sound normal. Well, until I reboot while being connected to the same USB port that worked and sounded fine, which uh, then sounded muffled again. This was happening before the lockup and after. I know the microphone and the focus rate are functioning correctly because this has never happened on my Pangolin laptop or my previous desktop that I was using. Given the small form factor of the M710, I'm hoping the thermal issues with the CPU were also affecting the USB controller. In between breaks while organizing my closets, I would turn on the M710 and open Audacity to see if it was recording my voice correctly. Each time, over a couple days, it was fine. However, I didn't use it long enough to see if the new thermal paste corrected the lockup issues. I will need to do a test run before recording episode 49. I wanted to replace my aging Xeon E3 1231V3 from 2014 with a Ryzen 9 3900X in my Plex Media Server. The Xeon is still usable, but the new video codecs are more challenging for it. I thought this was going to be a short one-hour project. Unfortunately, it turned into quite an issue. In the preparation for this, I bought a new MSI 750-watt PSU. I usually buy Corsair, but the MSI was about $30 less, with a similar warranty period, depending on the model. The Micro Center employees said Channelwell is the ODM, which stands for Original Design Manufacturer for MSI and other companies like Corsair. Along with making PSUs under their own name, ODMs can create a product using their customer's name instead of their own. The short version of the events is that the computer booted once and was later found powered off. The diagnostic lights on the motherboard reported that the CPU is not recognized or has failed. Oddly, it will only show those lights with the 24-pin and one 8-pin cable plugged into the motherboard. This was my last evening at home, which meant I didn't have time to remove the PSU from another computer to do some troubleshooting. I didn't hear any loud noise as I was in my kitchen preparing dinner, so no cap or anything component on the motherboard popped or in the power supply. Um, that would be kind of obvious. I didn't smell anything uh, burning in the case, though I was cooking, so it could have been a false alarm. <laughs> I'm quite familiar with that burnt electronic smell. I looked over the motherboard with the flashlight and didn't see any signs of damaged components. Considering the over-voltage protection in the motherboard and CPUs, I'm leaning towards it being a DOA PSU. MSI has been selling PSUs for about three years. I'm not impressed and will be replacing this with a Corsair PSU. And I'll talk about more of this next month when I go through what my uh, wanderings were while I was home this holiday season, but I'm actually liking the power supply. But in, in any case, if indeed that is the cause of the problem, unfortunately, it will be past the return period by the time I arrive home. It was my fault for trusting an unknown brand with a uh, new product line. My suspicion is based on over 30 years of experience building and repairing computers. It says that companies not only sell products, they also sell 
quality control and uh, component selection at a price. It could be that Corsair has better contract relationship with Channel Wall than MSI does. Given how MSI has only been a customer for about three years, I have Corsair PSUs going on 10 years of near 24-7 service, but uh, I'm kind of warming up to that power supply once I was able to test it on another computer. So I know I just get gun shy with some of this stuff anymore. Anyways, I finished trying out Fedora Sway and decided that I was not ready for using Sway. It works fine and is reliable. I just don't like the look of it. There's a limited amount of customizing you can do. Basically, just changing colors of the bar and stuff like that. Minor stuff. This is due to the Sway developers not having any interest. Hyperland, on the other hand, is very customizable and looks promising from what I've seen. The Jake at Linux YouTube channel has a walkthrough on compiling and installing Hyperland on Void Linux. I will be trying this next time I'm home. I am still holding out hope that XFCE and Cinnamon will be just as customizable using Wayland. Although Bungie is not as uh, customizable, it still looks good with a decent dark theme. I'm curious about its progress towards Wayland compatibility. Speaking of Bungie, I'm currently looking at Budgie 39 with Budgie, which is nicknamed Fudgy, which I thought was kind of clever. Budgie looks great and missed using it. It is like GNOME without the potential of the extensions breaking during a release update. I'm also getting used to the DNF package manager. It is slower than app, though it is doing much more in a single command, so it just looks like it's slower. And that would require multiple commands using app to do the same same function. I'm not sure I will stick with Fedora. It is very similar to Debian with its interest in FOSS packaging. I just don't like the testing ground aspect of Fedora. As I get older, I'm at the point where I just want things to work and be reliable. All my playtime I spend on uh, doing stuff for the podcast here. <laughs> so I like to keep my uh, other systems static. I don't know where I will land once Wayland becomes the default instead of Xorg. For now, my main desktop will be on LMDE or Linux Mint Cinnamon or XFCE. And currently, I'm on, still on uh, LMDE 6 as we're uh, recording. At least for uh, my podcast recordings, as I need that to be stable and reliable. One last item I want to mention is Tony George's website. You may or may not have known that name. He is the person behind Timeshift, among many others. I noticed he had some pretty useful utilities available at reasonable prices. A home folder backup utility using the Borg backup utility. And an AMD mobile CPU power management utility using the Ryzen Adjust, its ADJ backend. I've bought some of his utilities in the past, and they've been great. I just wanted to bring attention to him because I haven't heard him being mentioned since he uh, created TimeShift, which is what he was most known for. Right. Well, TimeShift is taken over by the Mint team. Yeah. I, and uh, Tony, I, is, is Borg the name of the new project? I saw different things on his website, a thing called Backpack and a thing called Homey that seem to be parts of a new backup system he's working on. Yeah, I think some of the ones, I'm not sure 
because um, the one the one I just mentioned there uses the Borg, but I think he is making use of some of the uh, time shift functionality in that, which he should, you know, it's a great service. So now let's move along to Eric. Hopefully he has had better luck with things than I have. Yeah, I'd say probably marginally. To no one's surprise, I'm sure, I've spent more time tinkering with my Dell Latitude tablet, which I, I found that I use more as a laptop than a tablet, but it's nice to know I could still do it. Mainly that's because of the battery being so weak on it. I only usually get about an hour and a half, maybe two hours of trying to watch something or, you know, think just things that are really intensive. So it tends to work better as like a word processor or as a laptop. After having tried several other distros, including Ubuntu 23.10, as well as Chrome OS Flex, which was just sort of on a whim, I'm back to Fedora 39. And even though Fedora isn't necessarily my favorite, it does provide an up-to-date uh, set of packages, which includes the latest version of the GNOME desktop. There are also some additional steps that I need to take to install things like the GNOME extensions that I use, as well as RPM Fusion repos. But it's not particularly difficult or time-consuming, especially considering I had thought about using Arch, but I'm really not interested in spending the extra time that you have to uh, in order to configure the base system and then also the additional configuration that I mentioned for Fedora. So I just don't feel like I get as much out of it as I used to. And frankly, sometimes things in Arch just tend to be more difficult than they need to be for my purposes. Nothing against folks who like Arch. So Bill, don't get mad at me. <laughs> yeah, I may have something to report next month and that I've been offered a good price on a barely used Pine Tab 2. And if I can talk the budget manager of my household into letting me get it, it's, it's a great price. Oh, neat. More on that next month. Yeah, I hope to hear more. I've been wanting to give Homebrew a try. It's an alternative means of installing certain software, so it's an, essentially another package management system. According to their website, Homebrew installs the stuff you need that Apple or your Linux system didn't. So that's its primary focus, even though it also provides support for WSL, so technically Windows as well. Technically. It provides a package management system similar to Snap or Flatpak. And as I mentioned, I have been wanting to try it, and I also have been wanting to try Hugo, which is a more one of the more popular open-source static website generators. So it's essentially a system for creating websites using static components instead of systems like WordPress with a back-end uh, database and all that sort of stuff. So it's much more lightweight and easier to run uh, on lighter servers and things like that. I could have used Snap because they do offer a Snap package, uh, but I'm not much of a Snap fan. So I thought I would give uh, Homebrew a try. I would point out that we do have a listener who has offered to rewrite our website uh, using Hugo, but he feels it would require some training and on how to do the upkeep on the website that WordPress doesn't. Yeah, there would be more sort of a writing a, a thing each month, you know, to that update wouldn't be as simple as just creating a post and uh, that sort of stuff. So it's something that I don't think is the is a terrible idea. Static sites in general are have a lot of advantages over something like Blogger. Something to think about, I suppose. But uh, but I've been interested in it just because I tend to build a lot of websites that are not updated on a routine basis. So essentially like a brochure in a way where you've got a business, what they do about it, you know, the products they sell and so on. And it tends to be that 
WordPresses and Blogger and other systems like that are overkill. So anyway, I wanted to give this a try. I could have used Snap, thought this would be an opportunity to use Homebrew. In order to do that, I had to set up Homebrew first. And it was one of those infamous curl commands where you're sort of trusting that things do what, what, you know, they aren't doing anything bad, let's put it that way. But this one actually lets you see the steps as they go, and it sort of explains what it's doing, and that at least gives you a little more confidence that what you're running isn't doing anything harmful. But once it's installed, you then have this brew command, and uh, it's basically as simple as brew install and then the package name. And in this case, it was Hugo. So brew install Hugo sets it up. It's installing this stuff in its own subfolder in your home directory. So it's not actually mingling it with the system at large, which is kind of nice. And again, it's, you know, one of the advantages of using a third-party package manager. Homebrew provides an easy way to update itself and any packages you have installed via a simple command brew update. And then the double ampersand, if you're not familiar, that's just how you tack on in more commands to a single input. So double ampersand brew upgrade, double ampersand brew cask upgrade. There's also some humor involved as well because it's homebrew. It's the home craft brewing craze, if you will. And so they have things like you're pouring when you're installing or you're using a cask or a keg. And so they kind of on brand, I guess you would say there with their terminology. I, I think that stuff's kind of funny and fun. Um, but it is something you have to learn, like what's a cask, <laughs> what's a keg, but it's not hard to sort of get the analogy that they're making. It's interesting to see that there's yet another package manager out there in case we don't have enough already. Okay, well, let's move on to updates. Updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Well, Zorin 17 is out. I look forward to reviewing it if I can finagle a copy as I did for 15 and 16. Mint 21.3 has gone to public beta with a version update for Cinnamon if you use it. Bodhi is preparing its 32-bit version of Bodhi 7.0.0. Dale? I previously mentioned in episode 48 that the Q redshift on LMDE6 wasn't working after it was installed. I noticed there was an update for it that was installed, so I removed Redshift GTK and then installed Q Redshift. After it was installed, I had no issues configuring it and is working fine now. Those two, you can't run them together. They're uh, not compatible for some reason. The Ubuntu team has announced their plans for 24.04, codename Noble Numbat. They also explain why they are using the Calamaris installer instead of the new Flutter-based installer from Ubuntu. With the planned new boot screen, you will have the option to connect to Wi-Fi or try or install Ubuntu. The installer will have customization options like minimal, normal, and full install. There are many more updates listed. Debian has released version 12.4, which supersedes 12.3 due to an ext4 corruption bug found in kernel 6.1.0-14. The release of 12.4 includes kernel 6.0.15, which resolves that issue. Unfortunately, the release of 12.4 introduced a regression in some Wi-Fi adapters. 
Instructions for those packages are available in the show notes. They entail adding stable dash updates to your slash etc slash app slash sources dot list file. And lastly, Spiral Linux was updated to Debian 12 and the uh, links to uh, Ubuntu and the Debian is in the uh, show notes. So we uh, move on to Eric. Thank you, sir. In episode 44, I reviewed Pop OS, and of course that's Pop underscore OS exclamation point. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's Pop exclamation point underscore OS. Shouldn't there be another exclamation point for emphasis at the end? They don't think so. All right. Well, see, there you go. I got it wrong. So Pop exclamation point underscore OS. I'll just keep saying pop from here on out. The existing release of pop has a lot to offer, provides a number of substantial changes and improvements to the GNOME desktop by way of custom extensions that they've created, which cover things like window tiling, a launcher, a dock. They've got all sorts of things that they have created to extend the desktop. And this has sort of led them to uh, the, them being Pop's developer, the open source focused hardware company, System76, to work on a custom successor to Pop named Cosmic, which is not based on GNOME, the way the current Pop desktop is. So Cosmic itself, which I've made the mistake of writing as a capital C in lowercase, which is, it's actually, I believe, on all capitals. <laughs> but anyway. It's all caps with periods after each letter. Well, uh, I'm just going to say cosmic, and you can use your imagination to think of all of those big capital letters. And System 76 is in love with punctuation. They certainly are. They certainly are. Somebody's getting paid by the, by the letter over there. <laughs> uh, and while it still has a, it has a way to go, um, but cosmic is really interesting because it shows a lot of promise. Uh, it basically takes the ideas that they've had around the extensions and the things that they've done to extend GNOME itself. They've rewritten that, I believe, in Rust primarily. So it, it just it has a really sort of interesting perspective on a desktop. You know, a lot of the same sort of features and functions that you're going to see uh, in any desktop, but it, it's a different take on it, which I find is interesting. That's one of the things I sort of love about Linux and desktop Linux in particular and desktop environments is that they're sort of an expression of creativity and um, taking something that is very familiar to most of us, especially those of us who are using uh, Linux and computers and uh, making it different in some interesting ways. So Cosmic is definitely different. If you're interested in following their progress, you can go to blog.system76.com and they give a monthly update on their progress. Yeah, they've been writing Cosmic from scratch in modules and all in Rust. So when they are done, it will the whole desktop will be uh, written in Rust. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. I did not have any failures this month. I do remember installing something onto my machine prior to Open Mandriva, and I didn't like it, but I don't remember what it was. So I'll just let other people talk. How about you, Dale? I had a quick experiment to see if I could install the Budgie desktop on LMDE6, since my uh, exploration with Fedora Budgie, yeah, Fudgy, 
piqued my interest in it again. I was able to select it from the display manager and log in. Everything worked except for the GNOME system settings. Every time I selected it, it crashed the budgie session, returning me to the display manager. I suspect it is due to some dependencies from GNOME that Cinnamon wasn't using. I didn't go any further than that. I have experimented with LMDE in the past, trying to modify the installation. It is most likely due to the changes Clem and his team has made to the Debian base. I thought about parsing through the uh, the GNOME libraries and what I would need to install, but after I did some research, I started getting the feeling that I would basically just end up with installing GNOME. <laughs> so <laughs> I've done that myself where you, you think you're going to install just one dependency and all of a sudden it's like the whole screen <laughs> is full of dependencies. You say, okay, don't need that package. Next to XFCE and... Uh, Gnome, I ran Plasma for many years, off and on, uh, even through the uh, the dark days of uh, 4. Yeah. That was the only thing I didn't, I didn't mind it if you're running Plasma, but if you're not running Plasma and you try to install a Plasma app, depending on who packaged the app, you end up with like three-fourths of Plasma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, and that's... I think one of the freeing things about the third-party package and management systems is that if you need the dependency, great, it's going to pull it down, but then you don't have to keep polluting your system with a bunch of stuff you don't need. Yeah. So let's move along to see what beautiful failures Eric has. I suppose it's fair to consider the fact that I tried other distros and didn't like them on my tablet as failures, but ultimately not sticking with them says more about my needs than it does about whether or not they failed. So it's not not a failure per se, but I did have one legitimate failure this month and that was going away on vacation and not being able to connect to the computers at home. Now, I have been using remote connection from on my LAN, so connecting to my desktop PC and my wife's laptop both from here, uh, from my laptop, no problems. When I've been at doctor's offices, same deal, not a problem. I used to do all this with remote desktop software, but I switched to using TailScale instead. TailScale essentially provides a virtual LAN, LAN, if you will. It uses WireGuard, and it's sort of like a mesh VPN. Uh, I'm not going to go into the any great detail here, but suffice to say it creates a connection between all of the systems that it is running on under your account and then allows you allows the traffic to go between them freely like as if you're on a LAN. And the performance is actually really good too. There's very very little overhead in terms of running it and then the speed you get is good and very little latency. So uh, I adopted that several months ago and I've been using it and thought, oh, well, it's already running on my desktop and I could get to my wife's laptop with, uh, I use any desk for that. And so good, you know, no problems. Well, I left, I got to where we were staying for vacation and realized I wanted to check on something and I couldn't get to my desktop. And then I started troubleshooting TailScale and realized, well, okay, there's something wrong with the connection. And then I couldn't get to my wife's laptop with any desk using the codes I have. Each each desktop, if you will, or each instance of any desk gives you a, a nine-digit identifier. 
I thought I had the right ones, but I didn't. <laughs> and so I'm thinking like, how can I get into these systems? On the same time, I'm also getting a message from my power company saying that the power had gone out. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe the systems are offline or my, my networking equipment's offline. I don't know. But I was able to fit, remember that my wife's laptop still had Chrome remote desktop installed. And so I logged into Chrome as her, was able to get through. And then I remembered my desktop has SSH installed. So I was able to get in via SSH and reboot. Um, after rebooting, I still couldn't get to it. And then remembered that I have a VPN that's auto-connecting. And, I re and then thought, oh, well, when that VPN runs, then I can't use TailScale. <laughs> so I had to disable it through SSH and then reboot again. And once I did, then I was able to get to it. And so I ended up spending several hours going through all those steps. And it was just because I had that VPN client set to auto connect. So one silly little mistake on my part cost me several hours. And there you go. The lesson being test before you leave. <laughs> Were you using the uh, Tailnet subrouter or subnet router on your network? No, just straightforward. I wasn't using any exit nodes or, you know, anything outside of the ordinary, just normal tail scale setup. And it works. It does not like other VPNs or vice versa. Uh, so that's basically what, what caused the problem. Yeah, because I've heard, I haven't tried it yet. I'm going to, but I've heard some say that even though, because the Tailnet subrouter is for things that can't run a node okay. on itself. Oh, right, right, and right. That's, yep. And it does the broadcast for the other devices so that you can access things like your printer and, and stuff like that um, if you want to access it directly. Gotcha. Yep. But I've, I've read that some say that they've had better luck getting into their machines from Tailscale. Gotcha. Running the, uh, the subnet router, even though technically it's not needed. Gotcha. Yeah. I, there's so much more that I want to do with it. And honestly, it's so easy to get running and, and running to a point where it fulfills a lot of the, the needs I had that I just haven't had to look. But I want to look at running an exit node. I want to look at subnet routing and all that stuff as well. And it's just, it's such an amazing piece of software. So anyway. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to our 2023 year in review. So in 2023 in review, we're going to start with Eric this time. So after having been a listener for several years, I decided to reach out in March of last year to let you guys, let these guys know that I enjoyed the podcast. I was welcomed with open arms and they said, hey, why don't you join us? It was unexpected, but welcomed. I had previously been an active YouTube creator as well as a co-host of a different Linux podcast and part of other tech-focused groups as well. And I had pulled back from doing these when my health worsened several years ago and just hadn't found a way to get back to it. And this was my path back, so to speak. So when they said, hey, you know, why don't you just come on and, and you know, join us? 
it gave me a reason to get back to doing something that I used to do, which was being a serial distro hopper, or at least just being interested in knowing what was new and what was coming out and that sort of thing, um, which I had genuinely just lost touch with. So in those days, I rarely used anything for more than a few months and sometimes literally days or even like a week. Um, and it was a lot of fun to do as most distro hoppers will tell you, but it can also, it's also very time consuming in a lot of cases, even if you are scripting things or you've set up your system so that you can just blow out one, uh, you know, instance of something and then install something new and be running quickly. It still takes time. It's a, it's a lot of time, especially if you do it on a regular basis. Sometimes that can also be really frustrating because if you're like me, you make stupid mistakes and then realize, oh, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> or I should have checked which partition I was blowing out. But that happens. You learn, live and learn, as they say. But, um, but this led me to, to stick with Ubuntu for several years during that time and just basically updating as new point releases would come out. And now, almost a year later, after having joined these guys, I'm not only co-hosting this podcast, but a couple others as well, participating in a couple lug-type groups, and also thinking of getting back to making YouTube content as well. And more importantly to the context of this podcast, I've renewed a renewed interest in distros and what's new in the desktop Linux world. I have reviewed seven distros for the podcast, but have looked at many, many more and have some new hardware to test with, and I'm looking forward to ma making many episodes in the future. I reviewed Linux Mint 21.1, the Cinnamon Edition, on episode 44 last July, and somewhat ironically have not distro-hopped on my main laptop since then. I have reviewed several others for the podcast and even on this laptop, but I can't seem to shake Cinnamon and, by extension, Mint. Everything I've said so far applies to my main system, as I said, which is the Dell XPS 15 9570. I already discussed my situation earlier with the Dell Latitude tablet, which has become a further outlet for testing as well. I have my desktop, which I also use. The seven distros I reviewed last year were Fedora 37 KDE Spin, Kubuntu 2304, Linux Mint 21.1 Cinnamon, as I mentioned, Pop underscore OA... <laughs> Pop exclamation underscore OS 2204, Rhino Linux 2023.1, 20, Manjaro 23, Uranus, Cinnamon Edition, and LMDE 6. That's one XFCE, one GNOME, two KD Plasmas, and three Cinnamon desktops. And I think that's a pretty good mix. I don't tend to use tiling window managers very, very often, but might sneak one in at some point. None of these took hold like Linux Mint has, however, even if though they all have their own strong points. You need to mix in Mate sometime. You know, I have, and it reminds me too much of GNOME 2. It just makes me remember those days. I, I don't know. I, I almost want to put them on the shelf and leave them there. Like, I'm just happy that I've moved forward from them. And Mate is definitely an excellent desktop environment for those who are interested in it, but I, I just think I've kind of taken a step past it and I'm not really just haven't enjoyed using it the way I did using GNOME 2 back in the day. So anyway, 2024 looks to be full of interesting new things so far, chief among them, the release of KDE's Plasma 6 desktop. I was a Plasma user for many years, but eventually was won over by the GTI, GTK side of things, mainly GNOME and Cinnamon. 
Uh, sure, it's nice to have the flexibility that Plasma offers, but I found myself spending more time tinkering than doing useful things. Well, more useful things, I suppose. I also seem to have ma many more issues than most other Plasma users and generally was using more GTK-based software anyway. But that was then, and I think Plasma 6 has a chance of swinging the pendulum back in that direction. I expect the first few releases to be mainly based on the QT6 transition, but I can see them potentially breaking new ground after that, which is an exciting prospect. I'm expecting less change with the traditional distros in 2024. Sure, new versions will be released and things will evolve as they always do, but I'm not aware of anything truly different happening. I'm hopeful that Wayland gains more ground, and I'm interested to see if Atomic and Immutable distros gain ground as well and become more mainstream. But it's alright if things don't radically change. There are so many distros out there based on the number that Moss seems to find for his updates. <laughs> and I've only tried a small number of the total. Don't blame me, blame DistroWatch. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, so I'm absolutely looking forward to DistroHopper's Digest in 2024 and beyond, and hope that you'll join us for the journey. Dale? Yeah, I wanted to comment on the uh, Mate and uh, Gnome 2 of those uh, from the past. I tried them. I mean, they're very usable, and they... I have no problems with them other than my workflow has just changed since then because my T560 in my bedroom on the uh, docking station, I'll use that when I retire to my bedroom late in the evening. And, uh, well, I tried using the old um, XFCE right-click menus that is common with, like, OpenBox and, and the other window managers and stuff. And it's just tedious anymore, just looking to me to find the application that I want to find. And I, I could see where people like that because it's order. It's you know where to find it every time. I can see the point of that, but I've just moved on from that. And I don't know if it's just, I don't want to call it impatience, but it's more of just hitting the, the uh, and I and I blame Unity on this, which I liked it back then, but it, that super key, smack the super key, type in what you want, press enter. And that, that ruined me because I was completely content using, you know, Enlightenment and, and, uh, XFCE, the old way of using it and, and, uh, and, uh, open box and stuff. But no, I just can't do it anymore. But enough of me rambling. Uh, for me, I find that Mate and Cinnamon are essentially two different ways of doing the same thing. And they are very similar in how they're laid out, but Cinnamon keeps throwing in extra bells and whistles and animations and things that, for me, are very distracting. And for other people, it's why they're using it. Nonetheless, there's nothing like Moksha, which is a fork of enlightenment. And I will shut up and go back to Dale. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> with, with Moss's comments, yeah. That's right. It's it's pretty much how we context switch, how we interact with something, and how we can focus our attention. Because some people, they look at the wobbly windows and stuff like that in Plasma when they're enabled, and it's too distracting. They, I know a lot of people in the past that said that they couldn't use Plasma because they spend too much time going, oh, I wonder if I could tweak this. I wonder if I could tweak that. And they never get anything done. <laughs> which I'm guilty. I've spent 30 minutes 
adjusting the wobble percentage in the wobbly windows. But <laughs> I would also suggest that if you're interested in plasma, I don't know what it's going to be like with six, but uh, of all the distros I played with, Farron OS is the one with the best and sanest controls for plasma. They set it up and you really don't need to fiddle with it anymore. Unless, of course, you don't like what their defaults are. But I find most people that use Farron OS, well, if they aren't comfortable with what Farron OS is doing, they'd be using something else. But I think they do an excellent job at Farron. Well, here are my thoughts for the, uh, the past year. The Linux distro that I have been looking forward to the most this year was the 12th version of Debian from episode 44 on July of 23. I was using version 12 when it was the current testing branch. This was also my longest experience with Wayland using GNOME to date. Aside from the early compatibility issues with electron-based apps, everything worked as it should. Granted, I don't do any streaming or video production using OBS, at least not yet, so the compatibility issues with Wayland didn't affect me. Once Electron was updated to support Wayland, I didn't have any issues, except for when I tried to do a dist-upgrade, and it broke something in the Wayland support. That was a self-inflicted problem since app's upgrade command prevents dependency issues. It defaults to holding back updates that require removing packages. I think that's a great feature if you ever wanted to try SID or uh, testing. That uh, if you just want to be on the straight and narrow, use app update. Do not use, uh, I mean, use app upgrade. Do not use dist hyphen upgrade. I know people will still complain that Debian's packages are old. And yeah, after it's been released for two years, yeah, it, they kind of show their age. I think these people are fixated on the new and shiny instead of what is different between versions. If there is a need for an updated version, using Flatpak, Snap, or compiling from source are valid options. Debian's move to officially support non-free firmware and software was a definite win. Now we just need them to uh, redesign their website so it makes it easier to find the ISOs. I, I facepalm every time I go there. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. I still have to go into the search engine and type in what I'm looking for to get me to the right page, unless I can remember the URL to type it in, but usually I have to search for it. I saw a really good video a few weeks ago that uh, was asking the question, why don't more people use Debian? And he showed all the pages you have to go through to find where the blank to find an ISO for it. And how they were not easy to read or figure out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's terrible. Yeah, I have to look in my subscriptions to get the YouTube channel. Brody, Brody Robertson. He uh, is a Linux uh, YouTuber. And yeah, he's had some videos over the years about the atrocity of the uh, Debian website. Lubuntu from episode 46 of September of 23 has left a good impression on me. It is almost half the memory usage compared to Plasma. I know this is not an issue of newer computers having 8 and 16 gigabytes of memory. However, it is impressive having similar functionality compared to Plasma. 
I was also happy to see the progress that SnapD has had over the years. However, I am still not a user of Snaps. I think they have a better integration on the Ubuntu distro. If I was using one of the Ubuntu distros, I wouldn't have many issues using them. Except I don't like auto-updating of software. This is a personal preference because I do keep my packages up to date and don't need a service to do that for me. When it comes to the typical user, I can see how automated updates are a benefit. Archcraft, from episode 43 of June of 23, left an impression on how they customized the Openbox window manager. It took quite a bit of effort to find the applications and to theme Openbox. Using it was a bit of nostalgia for me. I used Openbox and Blockbox, FEWM, and others in the mid-90s. Funny how your interests change as you get older. PC Linux OS from episode 41 of March of 23 was another walk down memory lane. It is a modern distro that still has the 90s Linux vibe to it. SysVNet is still alive and well. All root level access is done via SU instead of the common use of sudo today. The last distro I will mention is LMDE6 from episode 48 of November of 23. It has been nice seeing the improvements with every release. I was excited to see how the release of Debian 12 has helped the advancement. I always considered it the configured themed option of Debian, since it does take some time and effort to get Debian configured and themed. In previous versions, as with Debian, required diving into the terminal to get some things working. That is not required, if at all, with version 6. And as I look to uh, 2024, I look forward to the advancements of Wayland. I know it's going to be an inevitability. I'm hoping that other projects like XFCE will have something to try out, even if it is in early development, similar to what Linux Mint is doing with Cinnamon 6. I think with what Eric mentioned about uh, Pop! OS, which I forgot to put that in here because I'm interested in, in uh, Pop! OS's uh, development. Because uh, one thing I keep failing to mention in all these uh, episodes that we have of Distro Hoppers, because we always will talk about reliability, stability, and you know a, a distro that you want to get work done with. And I want to I try to keep up on this in the future, but my Pangolin was purchased in, I think it was 20, uh, March of 2021. And it came with it installed. And all I had to do was type in my username and it did the final installation part of the distro. And it's been that long already. Yeah. Wow. It's going to be, it's going to be, uh, three years old. I can't remember. It's going to be at least three years old, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe four. But I'm thinking it's at least three years old this uh, coming March. And this is the same installation. I haven't wiped it. This is the same thing rolling and rolling. And all the stuff that I've done to it, too. Rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. They used that in uh, the blue, the original Blues Brothers. They uh, had a rendition of Rawhide. That movie cracks me up. But in any case, I just wanted to point that out about Maya Pangolin. Is it's the same installation, updated, and sometimes it doesn't get updated for a couple weeks because I try to watch my uh, mobile data uh, usage, and because it updates fairly quickly, it updates you know faster than Ubuntu does, despite its you know Ubuntu base. The other thing that I didn't mention, the last thing I'll say here, is the gentleman that started the Cups project who was uh, working, well, he was hired by Apple because of his work prior to his initial work, I think in 1997, for the CUPS project. And I think it was Asno, and I think uh, DL, uh, Destination Linux, DL, had him and another gentleman that was also co-developing with him. And I think another thing to look forward to in 2024 is driverless printing make it easier to print in Linux, I think is going to be a uh, another big win. I know that Mint 21 already has taken a big step toward that. It was the first version of Mint I did not have to download the Brother Driver. It just said, oh, I'm connected to the Brother Printer on the network. Thank you. Yeah, I had to print something, and it was like the first time I had to print something in several months. It's one thing I like about LaserJets. The toner is dry. It doesn't get any drier. It's already dry. You can go a year, turn on the printer, it'll print. So take that ink-based printers. But uh, yeah, with uh, uh, LMDE6, I think it was today or yesterday, I needed to print something out. And I uh, turned my printer on behind me, and all of a sudden, popped up. Oh, I found your printer. Oh, it's installed. Just like that. Now, that is something you wouldn't have in Debian. <laughs> I never tried printing in 12, so I can't say that for certain, but that's always been a sticking point with me running Debian. I was trying to get cups to uh, configure my printer, which usually wasn't a problem, but, you know, printers are the bane of our existence. Well, let's see what Moss has to say about our fallen year. Thanks, Dale. Well, this has been a pivotal year for me. It was almost the year for me to ditch regular mint for LMDE. For that matter, this has been the year either I broke through with Debian or it broke through with me, as I reviewed more than a couple Debian 12-based distros and liked them quite well. Our podcast download numbers have remained stable this year, averaging just north of 900 per episode. Adding Eric to the team made a big difference, as did changing our primary distribution to Red Circle, thanks to Dale. We have two episodes north of 1,100 downloads, which was unthinkable prior to 2023. I've said this in a few places, but our little podcast has had more downloads than LeBron James has scored points in his NBA career. In the meantime, I got a brand new version of Bodhi Linux to play with, which is what I've done since the alpha came out. You don't have to guess what my favorite distro is, even though I do almost all my work in Mint. I hope my review helped push Bodhi up the DistroWatch rankings, and I wish those rankings actually meant something. I would state that any distro claiming to have a light desktop which does not feature a variant of Enlightenment is missing the point. I use a rather heavy form of Bodhi. My initial RAM usage is only 320 megabytes. I have friends who get it down to 100 megabytes. Only a minimalist window manager can do better. 
I managed to successfully review two immutable distros, Endless OS and Blend OS, which were quite good indeed. This also gave me more reason to feel good about promoting Blend OS and its creator, Rudra Sarasvat. I reviewed three Arch-based distros, Blend OS, Big Linux, and Endeavor OS, and I stayed in my wheelhouse with Varen OS and Linux Lite. The show notes state I reviewed Elementary OS, but I don't have any memory of having done that. Nevertheless, the continued forward development of usable Linux distros is enheartening, and I look forward to more next year. It appears that 2024 will be the year of Wayland. Fedora is all in, Ubuntu has made the move, and even Mint has a roadmap toward full implementation. We just need to see how smaller distros such as MX Linux and Bodhi come along. Anything else you guys want to throw in? Now, you're sure that isn't just some sort of reaction to not liking elementary OS that you've blanked it out? or <laughs> I have no idea. Walled gardens are not my idea of a fun time. I, I enjoy uh, my few talks I've had with the creator, uh, Danny, and she's been very friendly, and we appreciate all the work that she's been doing. But I don't ever seem to remember using it. I got you. It happens to me too. I look back at my list and I go, yeah, I, I know I used it for a month, but there's not a lot that's standing out to me. That's why I said the desktop environments tend to be more interesting to me because that's what I'm interacting with more than usually the distro itself. So anyway, that's all I have. I don't know. Dale, what do you got? Anything Anything else to throw in before we move on? Yeah, I'll just touch on elementary OS. I know it seems to be, other than Ubuntu and uh, Red Hat, they seem to be the other punching bag in the uh, in the Linux community. Oh, along that with SystemD, but we're not going to go there. I think with the last uh, incarnation of it, the scare messages for like installing sideloaded applications has been toned down quite a bit. I still think it needs to go down one more notch because people are really timid about things. It's I don't I don't know. It's just because I've been exposed to this. I did IT work for eight years back, you know, twenty years ago, and I'm still involved in computers. I just build a computer on the. Uh, Linux Roundtable or the Linux Mint Roundtable uh, last weekend, and in one of my servers I was working on. So I'm still active in in doing all that stuff, but it it still surprises me. Twenty years later, people are just as computer illiterate as they were twenty years ago, and that. So I'm thinking that needs to be adjusted. I I understand Danny's desire. And having a very well bespoke distro and having everything set the way they, they want it. And that's very commendable. It's a lot of hard work. But I just think that when you don't have an application, and we're not talking about an obscure application, you have a person that wants to install Discord. You don't want a person that wants to load Audacity. You want, you know, these normal applications or even a word processor or anything, if they don't see it in the in the software center, they're going to either leave or ask somebody, um, where is it? Why why can't I find it? No, oh yeah, you just install it for disk you know, from Flatpak. Well they go and do that and they see this message come up and says, 
yeah, this might not be a bad idea, but we're going to let you do it. Yeah, it's sort of like those stickers they put on computers say that if you open the box, if you remove the sticker or break the sticker, that you've voided your warranty. And of course, I bought the computer that I already used and it was over five years old and what warranty? <laughs> but still, everyone gets scared about these things. Anything out of the ordinary is scary, that's for sure. Well, let's move on to new releases. New releases this month from November 23rd through January 2nd, XTix 23.11, RLXOS 2023.11, Proxmox 8.1 VE, IPFire 2.27-Core181, Slackle 7.7.2 Live, Ultramarine 39, Absolute 2023-11-24, Open Mandriva 5.0, Sys Linux OS 12.2, Archman 2023.11.26, Nomad BSD 140R. I guess that's a uh, pirate version. Uh, R. Oracle 8.9, Spiral Linux 12.231120, Nitrix FEFC 905B. They don't believe in numbers at Nitrix. Q4OS 5.4, Armbian 23.11, 4M Linux 44.0, Linux FX 11.4.3, NixOS 23.11, Proxmox 3.1 Backup Server, Alpine 3.18.5, Gnopix 23.12, Arco Linux 23.12.03, Open Media Vault 7.0.11, Maybox 23.12, Solidex K12, Xero Linux 2023.12, Kali 2023.4, EasyOS 5.6.5, Raspberry Pi OS 2023-12-05, Alpine 3.19.0, Sparky Linux 7.2, Freespire 10, Puppy 10.0.3, Cassie OS 23.12.10, Regatta 23.0.38, Open Mamba 2023.12.10, OSMC 2023.12-1, Univention 5.0-6, TrueNAS 13.0-U6.1, PSSense 2.7.2, Tuxedo OS 2-20231218, Open Media Vault 7.0-16, Cubes 4.2.0, Rhino 2023.4, Zorin 17, KDE Neon 2023-1221, Nutix 23.12.2, Tails 5.21, Hunix 17.1.0.2, Manjaro 23.1.1, LibreAlec 11.0.4, Open Mamba 2023-1226, Nobara 39, Exa 2023-1220, Gnopix 23.12.15, Open Media Vault 7.0-20, SmartOS 2023-1228, Midnight BSD 3.1.3, Arco Linux 24.01.04, Watt OS R13, Peppermint 2023-12-30, Bluestar 6.6.8, Manjaro 23.1.2, 
Ubuntu's DE5-1.01, and Arch 2024's .01.01. And a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah, and I didn't do as good a job of editing on that one as I thought I did. Better than I would. That's oh, a well. lot of <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> lot of words and numbers. I think they dis- they released ten more while you were reading it. <laughs> they were busy this this fall. Good grief! I'm telling you, everybody's trying to get it in before the end of the year, right? Well, last month's was pretty short, so I guess they caught up. Everyone rushing to get out that Christmas distro for to go in your stocking. <laughs> So, feedback. We noticed this month there has been a backlog of comments to be approved on Blogger, so we'd like to remedy that. Peppa commented on DistroHopper's Digest episode 31, which is March 26th of 2022. Every month, a great cast with a great crew. Thank you guys so much. It's one of the few I always look forward to. KR, Mark. Whatever KR means. Uh, Eric, want to do the next one? Sure. Mike commented on show notes for DistroHopper's Digest episode 33 which was June 25th of 2022. Hi all, I keep hearing about Grub install update issues. Just wondering, has anyone tried ReFind? I've had no issues with it finding all boot partitions, Linux or Windows, but of course Ubuntu will make Grub the primary boot manager whether you want it to or not. Just use EFI boot MGR or maybe ReFind MK default to set it back. How about using Super Grub Disk 2? It has been pretty reliable for me. Just boot up with it, select your primary Grub OS, and after boot, run grub-install to get Grub Boot Manager back. TIA Mike. I have had a lot of issues with ReFind. ReFind, uh, with, with all the distro hopping I do, uh, your EF, EFI uh, boot is never cleaned out and I am not, I am really itchy about going in to a file that that's that, that protected and cleaning it out myself. So what I wind up with is about 20 different uh, possible boots and, and they aren't as clearly defined as uh, you'd think they would be. And you have to do a lot of guessing and you can hide the ones that, that you don't like, but you can't remove them. As far as Super Grub Disk 2, I've used that in the not very recent past, and it has been useful when I've absolutely needed to have it, but I haven't used it for a long time now. Anyone else got comments? I completely agree with you that the EFI partition is an absolute mess if you distro hop. There are, there seems to be very little adherence to any kind of a convention. I mean, sure, there are, you know, slash boot, slash EFI, and then, you know, different sort of layouts under there, but it seems like every distro just kind of does what they want. And also they tend to reuse things like if it's an Ubuntu-based distro, then you're going to see more than one Ubuntu, even though it's something, an offshoot of Ubuntu. Right. And they all just say Ubuntu and use the same logo. So you can't tell them apart. Even if you go into your BIOS and you try to look at your boot entries, it'll just say Ubuntu. And you're like, I know it's not Ubuntu because I don't have Ubuntu installed. <laughs> right. So yeah, it can be very difficult and also very off-putting to try to change any of those things. And I agree with you, Moss, unless you are comfortable fixing it after you break it, a lot of people just <laughs> don't want to play around with it. <laughs> the only... uh Utility that I found that you can remove EFI entries was uh, 
EFI boot manager. I think it's EFI boot MGR. But then again, you're hoping that the entries are numbered the same way they are in your EFI right. on your computer because you delete the wrong one. You're reinstalling unless you're really crafty at the command line syntax of re-adding the EFI boot stub. Well, that's where Super Boot Disk 2 comes in. Yeah. You wipe it all out, you load your Super Boot Disk, and you try and reclaim your directories, and it, it writes a new EFI for you. Oh, that's cool. I've never tried that. <laughs> all right. Go on to the next one, Dale. All right. SB56637 commented on Show Notes, Distro Hoppers Digest, episode 35, August 20th, 2022. Hi there, Spiral Linux Creator here. Thanks a lot for the nice and thorough review. A few responses to your comments. Regarding Firefox ESR, that's actually the only version that Debian Stable offers. It kind of makes sense since Debian's policy is not to include any feature updates during the stable lifecycle, so if there were any security fixes, they would have to backport them if they were using the normal stable release. I didn't want to include the Flatpak version because I prefer native dev packages whenever possible. I am glad the GNOME software system update process worked, but I still don't trust it for updates. And in Spiral Linux Wiki, I recommend using Synaptics for system updates. Regarding adding the default wallpaper to Linux Mint's wallpaper selection, ironically, that wallpaper is originally from a Linux Mint release that came out about 15 years ago. It's my all-time favorite. Regarding disk usage, it should use around 6 gigabytes by default. Did you maybe check it after initializing GNOME software after the uh, system updates? Thanks again for the coverage and the recommendation. Really glad it worked well for you. Well, thank you for uh, putting in the effort of uh, creating the uh, the distro. And as far as the uh, the ESR, I can see the point of wanting to use the ESR because it is extended release. And sometimes if you try to pin Firefox from SID, you could be playing with Fire potentially because even though Firefox will update itself, it's still kind of, like I said, playing with Fire in, in some cases because... Or playing with Firefox. Yeah, good one, Moss. But it's also because there's no security updates. I could have that wrong because the older I get, the less details of things I, I remember. But if I remember correctly, Debian gets security fixes. Testing doesn't get security fixes. And I believe Sid might be getting security fixes, but don't hold me to that. So I can understand. Um, I think in that episode, it was more of just like a suggestion of the option of being able to use Firefox from Sid. But and then uh, otherwise, yeah, I agree with him about the uh, Synaptics. That's a good uh, good update utility. It's been reliable for for several years. It may look old and out of date, but darn it, it just works. Yeah, that's what you want on Debian. You just want it to work. So you want me to take the next one? Let's let Londoner take it and you can re read your, let, let's let Eric take it and you can read your <laughs> response to it. Bye. Hey, Londoner, you take it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I will I will play the part of Londoner, which yeah, I'm sure I sound exactly like him. You ready? Now I'm not gonna try my fake, terrible British accent. Earlier today I created another dual boot VM, this time with LMDE6 formatted as ext4, but with Mint 21.2 using ButterFS, both in EFI mode. As before, both distros can read and create files in the home folder of the other. Once again, Grub in 21.2 ButterFS could see the LMDE install, but LMDE didn't see 21.2. This time, instead of using refind, I copied the menu entry from the grub.cfg file in 21.2 to the etc grub.d 40 underscore custom file in LMDE. Then after reinstalling Grub so that LMDE controlled it again, I, can I could boot 21.2 from the LMDE Grub menu. This menu entry loads a Grub module for ButterFS, but it appears that this provides read-only support. You need to remove the line record fail as elsewhere in the Grub.cfg file, it states Grub lacks write support for ButterFS. So record fail support should be disabled. Very cool testing, and I did the uh, his uh, handle at Londoner three six six. I still don't see why two GPL compliant applications don't work together. So, is there any other way of invoking the ButterFS support other than as you described? To which Londoner responded, "Not that I can think of." And yeah, that that's still it. It is bothers me. I mean, it's cool that they had, I never really looked at the custom files. I mean, I, I've seen them, but I never really looked to see what they were specifically for because I've never needed them. But I read through the documentation and yeah, it just seems to be like a half attempt at solving the problem. Cause like I said, read only support. I mean, it's open source. You do not have, you can't get the syscalls to access the file. My guess is they probably ran against some sort of a bug or something in testing. They figured that there weren't a lot of people that were using both and just decided to have this read-only approach to it. I agree. And only if you even enable it, right? So What bothers me is they've been saying for at least five years that ButterFS is the most advanced file system that we have available in Linux. And yet, no one has solved these problems yet. Yeah, I think it's also what I was, what I was going to say is the uh, it didn't have a good name for many, 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 many years. So I'm thinking that could have been the reasoning for that is because like, well, there's not very many people using it. People shouldn't be using it. So we're just going to leave this in here for anybody that wants to use it, you know, as far as what the grub dot. D40 custom file. But yeah, I agree with Moss. It's like the, not to get on a tangent, but it's also sort of the, uh, the criticism people have for uh, going to Wayland. What, it's been in development now since, what, 2008? I don't think it had a stable yeah. release until, what, 2012? Or something like that. Don't quote me on it, but yeah. Well, we'll have a little bit more of this in our last email, which is Biku, via email, commented on episode 48. Hi there, guys. This is going to be a short and succinct feedback due to some personal constraint. Slacks is offered in Slackware and Debian variants. Yes, we did comment on that. There is a link uh, for how you can download Slacks. 
Grub2 not detecting an OS on a ButterFS partition is an old and known issue. An easy workaround is to create a custom entry manually, and he has a link for a site that will tell you how to, quote, easily, end quote, create that custom entry manually. And he says, keep up the great work, Piku. So, I think we've beaten ButterFS to death tonight. We absolutely appreciate your feedback, either on the blogger website, by email, telegram, discord, or by contacting any or all of us directly. So, let's move on to announcements. In announcements, for chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Dale, where can we find you? I'm at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord, and my email is Dale underscore CDL at PM.me, and I just want to add, because I still get people that are don't know this and surprised, that uh, CDL is an abbreviation for Commercial Driver's License. Eric? Also known as Class A, yep. You can hear more of me on Mintcast, Linux OTC, Linux Saloon, and Linux Slugcast. I also have a YouTube channel at EricAdamsYT. You can reach me by email at eaonlinux at proton.me. How about you, Moss? And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News, as well as Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at zyvla at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale and Dylan, at itsmoss.com for a limited time only. Before we go, we would like to thank all those who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and Eric Adams for audio editing services. Joshua Lowe for work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine creators of the song Streets of Santivo uses our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel. Richard Stallman for the GNU Toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open-source Libre software. We'll be back next month, and thank all of you for listening.